0: Hello, folks. Uh, Welcome to the podcast Byzantium and friends. I'm Anthony, your host. I wanted to start this morning by saying a few words about a secondary reason I have for doing this podcast. Obviously, the primary reason is to bring the great work being done by my colleagues in the field of Byzantine studies to your attention. Um, I found that the podcast medium is a great way of getting that work across uh, better than learned academic monographs, (laughs) which have a very small circulation where few people read them or have the time to read them or the access to read them. Uh, Same for scholarly articles, Um, but uh, this has turned out to be a way by which thousands of you can see what's going on um, in the latest research. Uh, Setting that aside, I have a secondary kind of personal reason for doing it. Um. Well, lots of reasons, but one of which is that ever since college or grad school especially, I have a, I don't know if worry is the right word or anxiety about it, the ability of human beings to actually communicate. And I mean that in a very specific way. That is the ability of one person to develop <clears throat> a complex thought like a, an insight or an argument, that is falsifiable. So not a truism or a tautology or something that's obvious to everybody, but something that you have to work at and that can be falsified and to communicate it effectively to other people such that they are all at least talking about the same thing, if not necessarily agreeing about it. This is obviously an essential precondition for any scholarship actually happening, but while I was in grad school, I realized that this doesn't always happen, and in fact, it was an alarming number of times when it didn't happen. So for example, I would read a book review after having read the book, and I found that the book review was describing a different book. Like, that's not the book that I read, And so there was a failure of communication at some point. Uh, Presumably, the author of the review just simply didn't understand the book, at least the way I did, um, and was responding to a different book that no one had actually written. And this actually happens also at conferences and in academic discussions when you just see two people talking at cross purposes, like they simply can't connect and come to an agreement about what it is that they're talking about. I don't mean for them to agree. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm not, I don't believe that there can be some sort of universal consensus about anything, or that there should be. But there should be agreement about what exactly it is that we're agreeing or disagreeing. As I said, this happens remarkably often in scholarly discussions, enough to cause me some alarm or underlying anxiety. About what you know, whether we're clicking or connecting, and I found that the podcast medium is great for reinforcing my belief that human beings can actually communicate. Like I read this thing, and I understood it in the way in which you intended me to understand it, and I am now conveying that back to you, and 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 asking you to uh, explain it to many, many more people who are going to be listening in. And we're doing so in a way that the essential ideas of uh, work of scholarship uh, are getting across successfully. And I think that's great. By the way, if we want to get deeper into it, (laughs) so I am getting older and I've noticed in some of my older colleagues, there's a tendency to start operating by, uh, you know, some kind of mental filing system. So where, which is extensive, so after decades of experience, they've accumulated many, many, many mental files. And if you say a word, a name, a person, a concept, at an event, they, they go to that mental file, they open it up, and they, they find they have all these resources in there. The problem is that after a certain number of years, th- those mental files kind of become fixed. They become fixtures, and they don't add more files. And so y- you start having cross-purpose discussions because you know, you say Aristotle, and they go into their mental file and they pull out the thing on. It could be Aristotle, it could be philosophy, or it could be paideia, and it's like whatever's in there, that's what the discussion is going to be about. So, for example, it might be um, Aristotle equals higher education equals a class signifier that one is educated, and that's the discussion is always taken there. It's like, no, 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 I'm here to talk about like Aristotle's ideas of ethics, the actual ideas, and you know how this text might be reflecting them. No, 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 this, it's all about performance of elite status. It's like, no, we're not communicating. So I don't want that to happen to me, Um, and so I'm making a point of, I'm forcing myself to try to understand the ideas of scholars in, in a wide range of disciplines, sub-disciplines, um, and to understand them in the way in which they intended them and not to kind of force them into the cubbyholes that are obviously beginning to form in my mind too. So there are enough about that. Uh, I me- I meant that not merely in an autobiographical way, but as a warning to us all. Okay, so let's get to work. A number of episodes of this podcast have been about what we might call the life cycle of an ordinary person insofar as we can access that in the Eastern Roman Empire and we've talked about infancy and childhood and in the past we've talked about what we can tell about people's lives from their skeletal remains um, and you know many other topics of, either about daily life or um, the various you know, transitions from one phase to another. And we have a number of um, more episodes like that coming up. But I thought it would be fascinating to include in this loose cycle. (laughs) I haven't given it a name or anything, but... Something about the non-human world and the life cycle of non-human life forms. This type of research would be very difficult to carry out just a few decades ago. But now, with the accumulation of scientific data and sophisticated methods for processing it and bringing it into alignment with what the texts say, we are beginning to get some fascinating uh, ecological histories um, of antiquity in the Middle Ages and of Byzantium in particular. One of the most fascinating books along these lines that I've read recently is by Alexander Olson, which is called Environment and Society in Byzantium from 650 to 1150. The subtitle is Between the Oak and the Olive, and it is a ecological and historical history of those two species, especially the olive. I found it quite fascinating. I had never realized that there had been such a huge variation in the extent to which these um, trees were cultivated and used um, in, in the different periods of visiting history. And yeah, it all came to light. And a- Alex writes very, very clearly, so going back to what I said previously about um, you know effective communication, and it's all the more difficult to communicate the life experiences of, of a tree <laughs> because uh, no tree has ever told us <laughs> what that is. And so, it has to be reconstructed uh, in very particular ways. We talk a little bit about um, what what the sources are and the great sort of overhaul that happened in the um, agricultural um, regimen of, of you know Byzantine life in the provinces and in the kind of forests that were around people and so forth and how how they use them and how they engage with them. Um, it, this is a fascinating read. Uh, so I don't want to make this intro any longer. Uh, uh, Thanks to Medievalist.net for reposting these episodes Um, and without any further delay, here's my discussion with Alex. Alex, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So there's a saying among astronomers that God put most astronomers in the northern hemisphere (laughs) of the planet and most of the stars are visible from the southern hemisphere. And I sometimes feel that there's something similar going on with like Mediterranean or Aegean history where most of the people who write about it in antiquity, in the Middle Ages or so on, live in a completely different ecology from the one that they're studying, right? So this landscape that you describe, the you know, olive trees and oak trees and all of that, uh, the particular versions of them that you find in Greece and Western Asia Minor, right? I sometimes wonder if some of my colleagues have a purely academic understanding of what an olive tree is. Um, and when I teach courses in like histories of general, you know, whatever, I will start on the first day off and I'll just be showing them, like, this is an olive tree, this is a fig tree, this is a goat, just so that they know what these things look like. Anyway, that's yeah. for students. All right. So I want to start with the olive tree, which uh, is uh, probably the protagonist of your book. And I love the fact that the protagonists of your book were trees. Uh, so most listeners will assume that the olive tree is just a permanent fixture of the Aegean landscape and that the economy and, you know, dietary habits of um, uh, people in, in Greece and Western Asia Minor always, you know, revolve around the olive tree. Uh, but before we talk about its decline in the middle Byzantine period, but tell us a couple of things. First, how extensive was the cultivation of olive trees in earlier Roman times? And can you give us a sense that is of the industrial scale of production here and what were olive products used for?
1: Okay. Um, so in, in the, say, the, for lack of a better term, we'll just call it the classical Roman period, first, second, third centuries. Um, it, it appears that it was, all uh, the cultivation occurred on a grand scale. Um, There's a fantastic uh, archaeologist, David Mattingly. He he wrote extensively on this topic, and I remember reading some of his articles and just being struck by the his argument was so compelling. And he talked about the scale of all of cultivation in what's now um, North Africa during during the Roman period, Roman North Africa, uh, and also Spain, um, uh, Italy, and pointing out that you had not only was the olive, uh, not only did olive cultivation require a certain degree of technical know-how and investment um, with these large olive presses that could churn out huge volumes of olive oil, mm. but it also was a an industry that had subsidiary components. So you needed a ton of people now to make the ceramic, the amphorae, the ceramics that were going to, that you're going to ship the olive oil in. You right. needed people to... Load this onto ships. You need people to take it to big consumption centers like Rome, where you're going to distribute it to the populace, or or to other big cities for that matter. Um, so you you have people using the olive oil to make other products. He was pointing out that they used it to make you know moisturizers. They used it to make perfumes. They used it to as a fuel for lamps rather than just a condiment for food. Um, You're also using it in uh, the baths, for example. It's it's part of the bathing culture. It's something you use to moisturize your skin. Um, So it's this product that has, it's turned into many different things and used for many different purposes. Um, And because it's used for so much, it ends up blanketing a lot of the landscape in certain parts of the Roman world. You have olive trees growing in just huge numbers in, in some places. And this continues into late antiquity, uh, and you even get references to it in, say, the Levant, where you have uh, enterprising farmers who have planted hundreds of the trees in their lifetime uh, in an effort to, to make more profit from all these olives. So I guess to answer your question really briefly, um, the olive was very widely cultivated in the Roman world, uh, the classical Roman world, not the medieval but classical roman world really broadly cultivated and used for lots of different purposes um
0: yeah and and because of that um and i think many people put that together with the prevalence of the olive tree in those lands today Uh, like on my island lesbos i'm told there are like 16 million of them yeah that's a number we're told i don't know if that's possible but (laughs)
1: That's a big number. I mean, Lesbos is a big island, but that sounds like a very big number. It does.
0: um, Um, I I don't
1: want to challenge it. No, I
0: don't know. (laughs) But uh, you kind of assume that it's been that way all along. Um, And your your book makes a very careful and nuanced argument about that was not the case all along. Uh, But we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, After the industrial scale, let's also talk a little bit about the kind of labor involved. So what are the practicalities of the cultivation of um, olive trees and you know, in order to get the product? Uh, so I, I assume that most people don't know this. At least most people listening to the podcast here haven't actually been personally part of the olive tree cultivation process. So what does that look like?
1: Um, well, the actual process of making the oil, uh, we'll start with the process of the tree. Um, Generally, you have to graft the tree onto a, a, a stalk in, in where you're going to make it grow. You have to graft the tree there. Um, you have to protect it when it's young, make sure that nothing comes along and damages it while it's growing. Um, you have to make sure it gets enough water. Um, it, it doesn't need a lot of water compared to most other crops, but it, it still needs some. It's not, it's not the perfect you know drought resistant plant. It's drought resistant, but it, it needs some water. Um, after you are very patient, it takes at least five years really to get any fruit from it. That's worth right. anything, right. but that's, that's the, that's early some, some trees you've got to wait 20 years before you can get really good crops and it only fruits every other year. And even that every other year, when it fruits, it sometimes has a very meager harvest. So it's, uh, it, it's not a perfect crop, let's say, um, but uh, the actual labor requirement, as, as you're trying to make it, as you're trying to make the olive tree able to, to produce fruit, uh, it's mostly pruning, making sure nothing gets to it, giving it enough water. Um, once it's producing fruit, I think that's where we're more into the human involvement part of the, the discussion. And that is, you need to gather the olives. That can happen from hitting the tree with sticks and making the olives fall down um it can be as simple as just picking up the olives that have fallen if you wait long enough uh where you can pick them by hand um this is all before mechanization obviously but in in, say the byzantine context or the ancient greek context uh these are the ways you can gather the olives once you've gathered them you got to put them in baskets you got to take them to uh a crusher um and the crusher can vary considerably um it can be as simple as people just literally beating these olives with a block uh, until you've crushed them to at the other end of the spectrum a very sophisticated crusher that's made out of a volcanic rock and um, has a moving part that will roll and and crush the olives into a paste Mm
0: -hmm.
1: regardless of how you do it once you're done crushing you have this paste and then you take this paste usually in in sacks And you take it to a press. So remember the first time I learned about it, that was an important distinction, crushing, pressing, two different things. So you, the pressing part is where you're, you're basically leaving the olives for an extended period of time with a weight on top of them to get the oil out. And then the oil ends up usually in a big vat. um, And you have to let that sit so that the oil will separate from the water and then the other uh, sludge. Uh, so it sort of becomes like a parfait, three layers, right? Oil, water, and sludge at the bottom. Mm. And then you separate, you ladle the oil off the top typically uh, and put it into whatever receptacle you're going to store it in. So I guess in a nutshell, that's sort of the the human labor component, what, what people have to do to get the oil from this fruit.
0: Right, right. And walking around archaeological sites or the remains of, settlements uh, in this part of the world you will often come across the remains of crushers (laughs) they're either these big stone wheels or the stone platforms that they rolled on uh, in order to crush the. yeah it's a pretty common thing to see Um, it's a very big bulky stone device and uh, they yeah they tend to survive Um, okay good so your book makes the argument that this kind of industrial scale of olive oil production basically ceased in the middle of byzantine period so between the 7th and the what 11th or 12th uh, centuries right depending on the region
1: yeah yeah it um m- my argument is that it it pretty much stops in the 7th century and only exists on very small scales in Particular locales and in other locales it just disappears entirely, and then it comes back around the late tenth, early eleventh century, but not on the same scale.
0: Okay, so before we talk about why this happened, can you tell us how we know that this happened? So, what is our proxy data or direct data that leads you to this conclusion?
1: Uh, the the biggest type of data that led me to the conclusion was what's called fossil pollen um there's people who work on assessing the types of pollen from different plants that exist in say a bog or a lake bed. they extract it in a core and then they do what's called a stratigraphical analysis Mm -hmm. where they look at the layers and they try to find something with which you can date the layer and then they literally under a microscope count the types of pollen and they publish these pollen reports and they say hey this is fascinating back in 800 in this particular place in a marsh outside of athens we can see that there was some uh vine uh, pollen from vitis vinifera you know the the vine was was present we can see some cereal was present here's a list of grasses that were present and oh lo and behold not a lot of olive present um and i noticed that in several of these reports where the olive in the the layers that we would call the middle byzantine period uh the medieval roman period um there's not a lot of olive and you see that in site after site after site. And some of them are, there are exceptions where you'll still have some, but it doesn't look like it's anywhere near the presence that they had beforehand. So that one type of data alone, the fossil pollen, that one form of data alone really made me think, Mm. okay, there's not a lot of olive trees pollinating in the countryside in around the Aegean during this period of time. And, uh, from there, then I started looking elsewhere. Um, Textual sources—they're pretty. They, I mean, they don't tell us much about the olive. No. Um, you know, archaeology. Uh, yeah, we have crushers from the period, but they're being used for watering troughs and are being put in churches, right? So, mm. it, once you start expanding from the pollen, you find that yeah, there's just not a lot there to indicate olive uh, uh, Olay culture on, on a great scale.
0: So, why do you think this decline happened?
1: Um. I think that this decline happened for a multitude of reasons. Um, one of them, I would say, I think Olay culture really likes security. Um, the Roman, the ancient Roman period um, certainly was more secure when it came to facilitating trade than say the seventh century. Mm-hmm. Um, you have this road network that's being maintained. you you know, the, the Mediterranean Sea was relatively devoid of pirates for most of the, the ancient Roman period. Um, so it's easy to move both products from A to B, you know, comparatively speaking. Um, and there's markets for it in these great big consumption centers like Rome. So A, it's possible to move the product. Um, you know, it's secure enough to move it. Right. B, there's this, this demand in these Big consumption centers, and I think C, there's there is a incentive insofar as you have to pay your rents, you have to pay your taxes. You go back to that wonderful argument that um, Hopkins made for um, uh, the first and second centuries in Rome. He had this wonderful argument about taxes and rents sort of stimulating the economy under the under the mm-hmm. the, the Roman um, uh, rule and i think there's a lot to be said for that argument the idea is hey the tax collector comes around now the landlord comes around you owe money how are you going to get money in a world with an agrarian economy you produce agrarian products like olive oil for example so there's it's possible to move the olive oil make money there's an incentive to move it for money because you need to pay your bills and um there's a demand for olive oil because of the various cultural practices and the, the dietary preferences at the time. So I think all those make this perfect storm for having olive oil in that period. But when you get to the seventh century, that's all gone. Um, it's not a very secure time. If you're in the Aegean basin, um, it's not a, a time where it's, I mean, if you're, if you're afraid of, uh, of, of raiders showing up or, or some sort of violence, you have to be able to move. You have to be able to get uh, out of your home and go somewhere else, uh, take you know, take livestock with you, for example. Um, that doesn't, that's, that doesn't make, um, a lay culture attractive. I think. Right. Um, I also think the incentive is gone because the markets just aren't as big in say the, the, you know, 800, 900 in Byzantium, you've got Constantinople, but I think that's pretty much it. I don't think there's much demand for all, all of oil at the time. Yeah, so
0: it's not just the security of the cultivation, which is one factor, but it's the security of the trade routes and the size of the demand, right, in the markets that would fuel, you know, extensive industrial production, and all of those decline
1: together. Exactly, exactly. And pretty much all that's gone after 650. And therefore, why bother cultivating olives? I guess that's sort of the argument.
0: Yeah. So, what kind of products do people use in the place of you know olive products?
1: I think um, dairy is a big one. You know, you you can you can use butter. Um, you don't have to have uh, olive oil. You can use butter, right? I, I prefer olive oil personally, And <laughs> I, you know. But I I know of people who are the opposite. Um, but I think that uh, dairy probably edged it out in many ways. Um, also, yeah, you can use. Olive oil to light a lamp, but if if you want you can also use a candle to to light space at nighttime. well, it looks like there was plenty of uh, wax still available um, I, I think that you know things like wax and dairy products sort of displace the olive uh, when the oil is not readily available anymore
0: yeah, and in fact there's a archaeologically there's an argument that um, the old the ancient style of lamps goes out of fashion or just isn't manufactured anymore after the seventh century and they switch to candles
1: yeah
0: right which is eventually how you end up with people with the name curularius which (laughs) is just a, a wax candle maker um yeah yeah there are a number of changes in sort of material culture at this time um Some of which are relatively neutral, like from lamps to candles, you know, they still produce the same kind of light and it's their their advantages and disadvantages to their use. But the the transition from something like a tiled roof to a thatched roof is a really diminution of of quality of life there. But anyway. um, Yeah. Okay. Um, So what happens to the olive trees themselves? So you have a landscape that's full of olive trees and all these factors kick in. And people just aren't safe or interested or incentivized enough to cultivate them. What happens to the population?
1: Yeah. Um, well, the, the term that uh, another uh, prof told me, uh, uh, Benjamin Graham, and in, in, um, he's in Memphis now, he was saying that they, they go feral. <laughs> uh, I, I love that term. So I use it in the book. But I, yes. I, I, got, I got
0: a kick it. out of that. <laughs>
1: that's a, I wish, I wish it was my word, but I'm I'm giving it to him. Um, But yeah, they go feral because if you're not pruning them, then the leaves just take over the tree. You also get new shoots coming up and it it starts to look like a bush, not a tree and Mm -hmm. not enough sunlight can get in to, to make fruit grow. It's just leaves are now absorbing all the sunlight. And and that's why you have to prune the tree if you want it to be productive agriculturally speaking. So I think you end up with all these, these bushes, all over the, the countryside, these former olive groves. And um, yeah, they're just not great for producing fruit.
0: Yeah, I'm imagining a landscape with millions of feral olive trees. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so once that happens to a tree, does that mean like it can't go back or like you can't bring it back under cultivation? Does it mean that it that um, doesn't reproduce as well? And so like, if this continues for a couple of centuries, like does the landscape, Do, you, do you, does it result in a landscape with you know fewer trees in it? What happens?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I know from individually, uh, the individual trees will not pollinate much. They basically stop bearing fruit and they stop pollinating much. So, that, and that goes a long way also to explaining the absence of olive pollen in the cores. Um, but I, I think that uh, over time um, they don't reproduce as much and they maybe get edged out by competitors. There are certain other species, I believe that they, they do grow often within abandoned olive groves. I think pistachio mm. is one of them. I, I'm mm. a little hazy on that actually, but I think pistachio is one of them. I think lentisks might be another. Uh, so there are other species that would probably start to invade the abandoned groves. Um and then, yeah, the trees, they do die eventually, uh, but mind you, olive trees can live a very long time Yeah. Uh, in both, both wild and domesticated form. And to get back to your other question, you can essentially redomesticate it. You can go back and prune that tree. Um, it's, it's a lot of work, but you can actually bring it back to being a, a, a tree for cultivating olives. Yeah. yeah.
0: Actually, why don't you give us a sense of the lifespan of a cultivated olive tree, like Maximum,
1: Oh, I mean, I've heard that they can be, you know, in the well over a thousand years that there are examples of that. I think, I think the, the record somewhere was something like 2000. I don't, I don't recall off the top of my head, but I've heard there's one in Crete that's like 2000 years old. <laughs> I've, yeah, I've heard, I've heard stories. I I, I don't actually know um, off the top of my head what the average is. I'm sure there's a lot of variation depending yeah. on, you know, exposure, relief, soil, um, but yeah, hundreds of years is completely normal. There's nothing unusual about five, six, seven hundred years at
0: all. Yeah, two thousand is the highest number that I've heard, and I think it might have been about Crete. Yeah, um, but six to seven hundred is like no sweat. We can we yeah. can do that. And uh, yeah, and there, we should say that there's a lot of variation among different kinds of, sort of subspecies of olive trees, and they they look very different and feel like. I, I'm used to the varieties in Greece and on Lesbos, but uh, when I went to Andalusia for the first time, I was really struck by how small they. Are. <laughs> I was like, "What are these? What are these trees? You, you call them olive trees, but..." And I was reminded there's a <laughs> there's a saying about like forests on Iceland, which is like if you ever get lost in a forest on Iceland, you just stand up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but anyway, yeah, there are these sense. tiny little olive trees. I'm like, what are you? <laughs> anyway, so cute. Um, All right. So your book also makes a complex argument for when and why the olive tree returned uh, to cultivation in like the later middle Byzantine period. Um, how did that happen?
1: Uh, Well, I, I, I think it returns. That's my argument. Uh, my argument is that if you look at some of the proxy data, again, the, the fossil pollen, there are some locations where it, it starts to increase again around mm-hmm. 1,000, depending where you are and on the dating of the individual core. But there, there's a few of them. There's a few cores where, a few case studies, if you will, where we see the signature of all of pollen start to increase again. Um, we also can see uh, in the archeological record in some places that there's new workshops being built. For example, in Sparty, uh, new workshop built. There's an olive crusher in it. Um, I believe uh, in Asia Minor and Aphrodisias they had one too in the ninth century. But that's sort of outside of my geographical area. But uh, you do see in the in the tenth, eleventh centuries some archaeology indicating olive cultivation again. And then last but not least, we have texts talking about it. Um, you know athenite monastic texts are talking about it we have some monasteries in asia minor that are talking about it and some of these involve um peasant renters being tasked with maintaining and cultivating a grove and they owe a payment of rent in oil and the rest they can ostensibly sell for a profit and um finally actually we we do have italian merchants who have left us documentation demonstrating they were picking up, you know, some some pretty impressive mm-hmm. volumes of olive oil from places like uh, the like Laconia, and then shipping that to Constantinople, or perhaps even shipping it uh, uh, further um, uh, into the southeast to the Levant to Cairo. Uh, so there is documentation to indicate that this trade was resuming, for lack of a better term. Um, why? I, I think I think the reason why it returns is it's It's once again kind of like in the first second, third centuries you have enough peace in the Aegean basin or at least enough security to uh facilitate the movement of this product there's incentive again once again because of the tax collector has come back so to speak mm-hmm. um, as well as the uh um uh, monastic landlords or lay landlords we don't we don't know enough about them in byzantium but i mm-hmm. I don't know why they wouldn't have been doing it too. Um, especially given that they probably owned a lot more land than any monasteries did but I guess that's a different conversation Um, and then uh, last but not least there's a demand for them for things like both uh, for food purposes it seems to be a condiment uh, using olive oil for almost almost like a relish I suppose Um, but also for lighting Um, we're hearing a lot about lamps again Uh, lamps in these big monasteries uh, and big churches in constantinople sometimes there's even a a specific differentiation between candles and lamps and you're using both uh so all told i think once again there's an incentive there's demand and then the environment is secure enough to facilitate the movement of the product
0: yeah this seems Uh, to be one of those cases where the presence of the italian trade networks stimulated production um, in the interior of uh, you know east roman lands Uh, because you know there's this traditional narrative that the italian the trade concessions the italians meant that they took over all of the trade and so led to sort of economic stagnation but in part they seem to have uh, played a stimulant a stimulating role
1: yeah absolutely and i think we also forget that um you know it's not like they that you know, Genoese and Venetians just showed up and took over all trade all over the Mediterranean. You still had, right. uh, Eastern Roman traders who dominated the Black Sea trade, or who were even going to Italy. You know, there were people sailing from what's now Constantinople to Ancona and uh, up the Adriatic. It, you know, so it, yeah, like you said, it's it's the narrative is pretty complicated, and by and large, it looks like there was economic growth, whatever the concessions were for, for yeah. the Genoese.
0: Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of the other trees that you discuss in the book, uh, specifically oak and chestnut. So what are their uses and to what degree are the labor practices that they require different?
1: Uh, For the uses of uh, oak and chestnut, um, I think it's safe to say that both of them once again provide nutrition for humans. Uh, Chestnuts directly so because you can eat the chestnut. Um, but acorns, uh, indirectly. So, um, and same with leaf litter, uh, some of the leaf litter from oaks in particular, uh, they indirectly provide the nutrition for humans via, uh, animals. So sheep and goats, for example, can eat the, the leaf fodder, um, pigs can eat acorns. And then, you know, we humans, uh, convert that, um, mm. meat or dairy products, um, so in a roundabout way, they do feed us. Um, other uses would include wood, uh, both for construction, but also for fuel. Um, I'm not too familiar with people using chestnut for, for fuel, um, more for, for wood for say ship planks or uh, construction, but um, oak is definitely used for charcoal. Uh, and there is, there is reference to that and oak is certainly used for building, and then also tannins, uh, which you need to work things like uh, um, animal hides into leather. Um, you get the tannins from the acorn caps. So they once again provide many different products, and people can, can interact with those products for textiles, building, food, but many different ways that they can, they can make use of them, yeah.
0: And so what factors uh, influence the cultivation of deciduous oak and chestnut in the places that you study, so in the 10th or 11th century. So you identify a number of those factors.
1: Yeah, and um, I for, for chestnut, for example, and, and my, I was really inspired by it, um, Paolo Squatridi's work on, on chestnuts mm. in early medieval Italy. And I just remember reading that but It was just like, I thought it was just an incredible book. Uh, I love it. But um, I couldn't find anything quite like that in Byzantium with respect to people cultivating oak tree, uh, uh, chestnut trees. Sorry. Um, I didn't see a lot of that. Uh, I see them making use of them, but I'm not, I'm not hearing much about like making entire groves of them. It seemed more like you, you got, you got a chestnut tree here. It's yours. You know, you want to make sure everyone knows it's yours. It is more, it seemed more reactive in a way people really making use of their natural environment. And, and um, you know, Uh, laying claim to it rather than saying I'm going to I'm going to plant 12 trees here you know what I mean Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah um, I I think that uh, uh, one of the reasons why chestnut um, seems to do well in in a couple of locales in the the 10th and 11th century is that while people are clearing other things while they're clearing other spaces to to grow uh, grain or to set up a vineyard um you don't get rid of the chestnut tree that seems to be what i what i found um with deciduous oak it's similar uh deciduous oak is something that there is a reference i think if i if my memory serves me correctly from the 13th century in in western asia minor uh w- which falls after the period where my book ends right. um, where there actually is a deliberately planted oakery um there's a, a space where they've they've deliberately planted them like as if it was apple trees or olive trees. Hmm. Um, now, I don't have evidence of that in, say, the 10th, 11th centuries in um, the Aegean Basin. But what I, what I would say is that um, deciduous oak has a real capability in that part of the world to um, take over abandoned farmland. It's, it's very good at that. And what, what I'm, my hypothesis is just that you get a lot of abandoned farmland in the seventh century and deciduous Oak is able to colonize a lot of that land and humans are not going to get rid of it when, unless they absolutely need to, um, they make use of it and they leave it there. And and that's what I think happens. So it's, it's not a matter of them cultivating it so much as saying, we're going to leave this untouched because it's really useful to us and we're going to work with it
0: actually you know now that you're saying it that way you might actually explain a very strange thing that i encountered way back in the day when i was doing like archaeological survey on lesbos as i was kind of tracking uh late antique early christian byzantine remains of which there are very very many and by remains i mean even like settlement remains like little piles of (laughs) construction material from you know whenever and so walking through the fields and the hills and all of that, eventually I realized that the aprinos tree is the easiest way to identify where there are remains. They're usually like growing directly on top of them. <laughs> and yeah, and you'll have a landscape that's all these, you know, olive trees and it's a grove and it's, you know, tended and all that. And there'll be a prinos tree right on or next to the remains of some early Christian basilica. I had no idea what it was between the the, the Prinos and the archaeological like remains, like what is going on? But now it, you know it's possible that like everything around it was cleared away when the olive groves were planted, but they just left those because they're not going to disrupt the like the, the remains of the ancient chapel, and they just kind of leave whatever's there, which includes those trees. Huh
1: all yeah, right that, that makes sense and and prenos in particular the evergreen oak is just uh, it's a monster for taking over whatever it wants i mean it's yes. hard to get rid of and it and it can hang on to anything it can um, and it's yeah. really unpleasant
0: <laughs> i mean it made working on those sites just just measuring stuff just it's ah anyway okay i <laughs> know um so monks and monasteries come up a lot in your book obviously because much of our data comes from the few, you know, monastic archives that we have. Uh, Tell us some ways in which they participated in these processes in kind of interesting or idiosyncratic ways, like things you wouldn't have expected um, like certain things that monasteries might've used oil for and and the like.
1: Yeah. I, I found that um, I I guess I should say it didn't surprise me, but um, you know, the monasteries were interesting in that they, they do create these they create their own agro ecosystems for lack of a better term um you know they they create lots of uh they clear land they clear rocks they clear trees and they create cultivated farmland essentially Mm
0: -hmm. and they
1: engage in some really impressive surplus agriculture um and they also, while they're at it, get wonderful tax exemptions to make it even more profitable yes. to engage in surplus agriculture. So you know they really get they really are uh, like uh, into you know vertical integration, so to speak, in, in economic terms, right? Um, and I, I think that uh, if there's anything surprising uh, that monasteries were involved in vis-a-vis Olay culture, I would say it was just the the need for lamp fuel. I mean. It, you need lamp, so much lamp fuel um, when you have these, particularly these big uh, monastic churches in Constantinople that, that need to be constantly illuminated and then um, further illuminated during special events. Um, you know, they had a real need for olive oil, and that would have um, uh, certainly driven them to support a um, uh, lay culture. uh beyond that yeah i'm trying to think about more idiosyncratic um more idiosyncratic things um i I did find it very interesting um actually the role that they the role their archives played in alerting me to something else and that was this idea of clearance uh the idea that you're you're clearing woodland and how you know whenever they're talking about boundary markers trees are just so important to them uh i don't think we think a lot about that aspect of it the fact that these they've always got monks and sometimes it's even a hermit monk who lives on his own who's Just like no that's my chestnut tree and then that triple trunk tree has that sign carved into it and there's that old one there and there's that young one there and those are the boundaries and it was like it that, that was actually what really struck me was the idea that the world these these guys lived in out in around mount athos or even elsewhere for that matter some of the monasteries you read about in western asia minor where Um, there it's, it's not like a symbolic landscape to me, at least, this might just be my own very, um, I don't know, sort of simplistic way of viewing the world, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a rich symbolism. It was more very, it was very, very physical, very corporeal, very, these are the boundaries of whom's what, and it's that physical object there, that one there, that one there. And I think that's what actually really struck me from looking at the monastic sources more than anything. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that also sounds familiar from walking all over the fields and so forth of the island. Uh, when I would encounter locals and ask them, you know, about the locales and directions, it was always in terms of very specific trees, rocks, and things like this. And then it was an effort to, to struggle to understand which tree or which rock they actually meant, and you know, go really? left after that one and.
1: Right, exactly, exactly, and 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 that really does um, sort of hammer home the point that to other people these symbols are are just they're so ingrained in your sense mm-hmm. of space and you don't think twice about it. But if you're from say another another particular type of environment, you know, you grow up in this city or that city, this is all lost on you. I mean, you just it, it don't have the um the conceptual framework to differentiate between these symbols. It all looks the same, right? Um so yeah, and I guess that, that really did stand out to me. Yeah, for sure.
0: You know, the yes, the funniest answer I ever got was so I was looking for a of some ancient shrine. Uh that some a local antiquarian had cataloged uh, them in a particular area and had said there's one of Saint So and so over by the some hill and next to that. it's hard to find. And I found a local and I asked him, hey, where's this shrine to say so and so? Oh, yes, I know. And he pointed at the road and he says, well, you take this and then you, you go left and then right and then left and then it turns this way and it goes that way and you turn left and it went. And it was a bit baffling because there was like only one road and <laughs> there were no other roads. It didn't, you know, there was nowhere to turn. Until I realized after a while that he had simply just described every single turn and twist in the in that one road between where we were and the place that anyway that was that was great. So um, at the end of the
1: road was the long and the short of it. Just go to the end of the road. Yes. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> um, all right.
0: I appreciate that. In some key moments of your argument, you bring in the role of the state. Uh, So now we'll move away from, you know, farmers and fields and so on and talk about Constantinople and this, the polity as a whole. Um, And you make the argument that state policies were actually important and influential uh, in having like immediate environmental impact, uh, as well as social and economic. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about this link between policy and sort of economic landscape impact? Like, where do you see it?
1: Yeah, I, I, see, I see two main things. One of them is the direct impact. And that is when you resettle people. When, when the state decides we're going to move this many people from, say, Armenia or um, maybe uh, central Anatolia, we're going to move them to a place in uh, what's now Greece. That, that, that's a big deal. I mean, if you're moving 2,000 people or 500 soldiers in their families, they're going to need to eat something right? Uh, they're going to need to clear land. They're going to, or other people in the locality they're moving to are going to have to clear land. So that's a direct impact. Um, and it's going to change the environment in that locale. I think the other thing is, is more indirect, but it gets back to the fiscal policies. You know, when the state is demanding coins and taxes, um, once again, to get back to the Hopkins argument, you know, people are going to have to grow something, to pay those taxes, mm-hmm. and that means indirectly, the state is leading to people clearing land or growing a certain type of crop versus another, um, in in the interest of of obtaining coins with which they can pay the, pay for their bills. And I guess another thing that maybe I, I didn't think about enough, but which also makes sense, is you know people want to buy their way into um, obtaining a, uh, some sort of a title with with a pension or simply networking. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, something that's maybe less coercive, more actually self, uh, seeking one's own advancement, one's own promotion. Well, you're going to need to make money for that, too. And that's going to also require you to most of the time make money off of agricultural products. So I think that uh, that's not really a state policy, but I think that's actually maybe something else that needs to be said is just the existence of a state machinery. The fact that it exists and that there Mm -hmm. are there are people that you need to meet to advance your career and that you need to be able to pay for things. That too, uh, I think, has an impact on the environment.
0: Yeah, I remember um, in the eighth century, Constantine V, so he began to insist more on payment of taxes in cash mm-hmm. rather than in kind and And of course, because he was a supposedly iconoclast, and the sources that we have about him are hostile, this is presented in very negative terms. but yeah. in reality. He was basically requiring people to sell their surplus uh, on the market um, and pay him in cash, uh, which, of course, stimulates market, you know, production to market. And he also issued more coins. He put more coins into circulation so that this was possible. And anyway, yeah, that also has ultimately that has environmental impact. Um, But anyway, um, so. In the book, you also engage in some interesting mathematical calculations I found fascinating. Uh, Can you give us an example of one? Like, what's your
1: favorite math problem in the book? (laughs) Uh, Well, I'm I'm not actually very good at math. Well, actually, I I took a refresher a couple of years ago after I I wrote the the dissertation for the book. So uh, I guess my math was not as bad as I had thought. I I got actually a very good grade in it, which surprised me. I was very surprised. Uh, But no, the the book has some math problems. They're, They're pretty simple arithmetic um it's usually it was just hey um if hypothetically a lamp burns this much olive oil uh for this many hours of illumination um let's take a look at you know some of these monastic typica and you have typicon for this monastery that says uh we need this many lamps burning this many hours or uh on special occasions and we need this many lamps burning all the time mm. and we need this many lamps burning at night and you start just adding up, okay, how many lamps are burning? How many hours do you think? Because, you know, we don't know for sure all the hours, but, you know, if, if let's just be really conservative, say it's eight hours of darkness. Okay, I'm being really conservative there, multiply the eight by the number they want burning at night, and then add that to the number they want burning all day. And then they, they ask for more during uh, Vespers and uh, uh, some of the um, other religious celebrations, and you start adding this all up, and then you multiply it by the number of or you divide it by the number of hours you can get from say one liter of olive oil. And then you arrive at this big number of liters that you still have left over. There's a lot of liters of olive oil required just to illuminate all this. And then you think to yourself, okay, well, that math problem actually taught me something about the, uh, the demand that these, these monks had for, for olive oil, just for lighting purposes. Um, so yeah, that, that was, that, that was, uh, the one problem I dealt with in a couple of instances, uh, I thought illustrative
0: when you're dealing with high volume of materials uh, and logistical problems. I often wonder how they themselves uh, dealt with these issues. Like, you know, was, was the steward of the monastery, like really good at math you'd, you'd calculate the volumes required. I mean, they would have had to be, I don't think it could all have been empirical. There are, you know, a couple of mathematical exercise books um, I know one in Greek and one in Armenian that have related problems like this. <laughs> I, it, yeah, like the Armenian one, I think, is something about the salaries of the priests of Hagia Sophia. <laughs> <laughs> if, you know, it's something like, if each priest gets this ma- this many nomismata and the, the, the total budget is X, you know, how many priests, you know, work in Hagia Is this stuff like that. Um, I can't recall now anything about, you know, leaders of oil. But yeah, this must have been definitely a, a, an issue, especially since, you know, the, the churches in the capital and, you know, a lot of these Ivy League monasteries, um, they had endowments of land, uh, yeah. part of whose purpose was to provide them with these kinds of materials. Um, and so, you know, year, Sophia, think how many olive groves, right, are dedicated to providing a Yosofia with the oil that it needs. We don't think about that very much, but uh, your book made me think about it. So that that was good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So speaking of things that your book can make people think about, come to uh, to the end here. um, Any final thoughts about working on environment and society in a Byzantine or just a pre-modern context? So what kinds of things should historians be on the lookout for? who, yeah, I mean historians who traditionally don't engage with these kinds of problems. Like we normally think of history as being the history of people, and not the history of trees, for example. But I found it fascinating. I mean, you kind of wrote a history of trees, and and anyway, there are not many books like that in our field. Uh, so, um, any advice that you have to other historians working um, on this or any related topic?
1: Yeah, I. I, it's a really good question because I, I wondered about that question on and off, actually, uh, even when I was trying to come up with my own PhD, like just a prospectus for the dissertation, you know, and I had taken an environmental history course with a bunch of modernists. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I strongly believe that it's always a good idea to at least do the mental exercise of thinking what other sub-disciplines are doing that relate to your own research. so let's say you work with uh, texts, um, studying what people are doing with material conditions might not seem immediately useful, right? It, it might not seem that way. But I think that if someone just takes even just a little bit of time to familiarize themselves with, say something in something that archaeologists are doing that pertains to your field, uh, or art historians, or environmental history, if you want, uh, I, I think it's still at least... It, It'll make you more creative in your research questions at the very least. Um, I I think it's, I know interdisciplinarity is sort of a word that gets thrown around a lot now. Um, And I think a lot of people, you know, they they say they're doing it, but they're not really. Um, Or they're doing it, but they're actually having a hard time drawing meaningful conclusions from it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that said, I still think it's a really good idea to try to check out, the ways that other people are approaching different problems in the, the time and period that you're studying. Um, specifically for people who are looking at Byzantine material and are, are, are studying, um, you know, the, the medieval Roman empire and, and the world in which it existed. Uh, I think the environmental data is really useful if you want to look at material culture. And it's really useful if you want to look at economy. Because the texts are often not telling us enough about that, right? Um, And that's not a value judgment on the texts. Uh, I don't want to come off as if I'm insulting medieval Roman authors for not talking about this, because to be frank, most of us in our own context don't know where our food comes from, right? We, we don't know where it comes from. We don't, we don't think about where our own, uh, we, we use cell phones, computers all day. How many of us actually know where the, the metals come from, right? We, we're all mm. equally ignorant and focused on our own, our own lives and our own professions and whatnot. And I don't think it's actually reasonable to expect too many of the medieval Roman authors to be any different than us. Right. Um, but the truth of the matter is they didn't write much that we f- will find immediately useful if we want to understand how their economy worked. They didn't write much that we will immediately find useful if we want to know what their countryside looked like. And I think that looking at the environmental data really helps add a uh, better understanding uh, of you know, population. Doesn't look like there were as many people around, actually, given what the countryside yeah. looked like, yeah. um, what people were eating, how, uh, what were people building out of, you know, was was uh, were homes generally more of a temporary construction? Like these are all very interesting things that add nuance to our understanding of the medieval Roman world. So I think the environmental data is really useful from that perspective. And I also think it's really useful, even if a person is studying texts, say, um, it can throw out some really neat things. Like, you know, they talk about um, rhetoric in texts when they're describing the countryside. I mean it's it's a it's a rhetorical technique in a lot of, of the writing from uh both the medieval Roman period and all the way back to ancient Greece, you know, like uh during the time of uh Pausanias and, and Plutarch, where where people are are describing the countryside as abandoned. Well, why are they doing that? There's a rhetorical purpose, right? They wanna they wanna say that there's not a lot of people around, uh the polis that you're talking about is, is politically insignificant and weak because there's not a lot of people. Well, if we actually look at this archaeology or if we look at the environmental data, we might know that, ah, there's, nah, there's, there's actually maybe more people around than they're letting on. Um, it, hmm. it basically then will get us thinking, why are they saying this? Well, there's a rhetorical purpose to saying it. What's that rhetorical purpose? So my answer there is that in a roundabout way, Being at least conversant with some of this other data can even help you do something like understand the text you're working on. If that makes sense,
0: it does. And I second everything that you've said. I mean, it's just very good advice. Uh, You know, pay attention to uh, other subfields or disciplines that might seem adjacent, but uh, if you explore them, they will provide essential methodologies. And be on the lookout for blind spots in our sources. They because they're not talking about anything doesn't mean it never existed yeah uh, yeah and there's some pretty major parts of medieval life that they don't really talk about that much and not because they don't know about it often it's the stuff that they know the most so what's the point of writing it down everybody knows yeah, that stuff.
1: yeah. exactly exactly like i you know i don't know how many kilometers it is from my apartment to downtown if you ask me how far it is i'd say it's 20 minutes by bus because yes <laughs> I know the root. I don't I don't need to to flesh it all out for you, you know. I'm not gonna write it down in a journal or something. It's it's yeah. it's obvious to me.
0: Or how tasty a goat is.
1: Yeah. I don't know if it is very actually. Yeah, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> you
0: watch, you you watch those that's those fighting words.
1: <laughs> anyway. I've had some, it's it's pretty good actually. It's <laughs> interesting.
0: All right, Alex, thank you so much, uh, both for undertaking the research, writing a very clear book about it. I enjoyed reading it and for coming on to talk to us about it.
1: Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. You take care.